God, we do trust you. We're thankful for the ways in which you have proven yourself trustworthy, God. God, I pray that during a time like this, that as we gather um, in the name of Jesus Christ, different kinds of people with different experiences this week, some in here are new to the faith or are inspecting this thing that we call Christianity. God, others in here have followed Christ for many years, God, but no matter the case, what each of us want is a greater awareness of who you are. God, we have questions about what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our world. We have questions about the purpose of the church. We have questions about uh, what it means to know you and to be known by you, God. And so I just pray that in this moment, God, that your spirit would do something that is very mysterious to each of us, and that is speak to our hearts. I pray, God, that you would do what only you can do. And as you're speaking to our hearts, do some transforming work, God, this morning. For those that are here that need to be encouraged, I pray you'd encourage them. For those that are here that need to be instructed, I pray, God, you would provide some instruction through your word and that they would be compelled to respond to the goodness of the sweet name of Jesus, to trust you with whatever decisions they make going from this place. Lord, we love you, and I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Grab your Bible if you have one. G read from a couple of passages about the same incident, Luke chapter 22 and Mark chapter 14. If you are uh, quick on the Bible uh, or want to use your phone or whatever, you can, you can turn to those places, and I'll be reading parts of them again. Everybody doing okay this morning? And y'all look good. Everybody looks good this morning. Everybody looks pretty alert. Uh, we, uh, we have uh, had an incredible summer, and here we are winding down at the end of an awesome, awesome summer. Uh, we, we have met many new people in the community. Some of you are here because we're new in this location. Our church is three and a half years old. We've been meeting downtown, but just in the last couple of months, we moved down here in this location, and we've gotten to meet some new people. We've also met some people through this event we've been doing every Saturday called Summer Fun Squad. The purpose of Summer Fun Squad is to show up at the park and just love on the community. No strings attached. We even give stuff away and we have a good time. So it's been a, been a lot of fun. Raise your hand if, if uh, you have uh, had a good summer. Raise your hand up if you've had a good summer. Now, 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 okay, put your hands down. Raise your hands if you are more tired than you should be at the end of a summer that's supposed to be restful. Okay, very good. So I'm with you there. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a tiring summer and so it's been a good one though. We're in this series called what's up with that look to your neighbor and with some passion ask what's up with that i i feel the passion people i feel it i see it this series is one where we're just talking about simple practices of the christian faith particularly in christian worship the first week we asked the question with respect to the bible what's up with that why do we read the bible and we looked at the scriptures and we believe that the written word reveals the living word jesus so the written word the bible reveals the living word jesus and so as we see clearly what the truths of the scriptures are we get to see god we get to see and know god and he gets to uh, reveal something in our hearts about us too. And so we talked about the Bible. That was, that was something that we, we wondered, what's up with that? And then we talked about singing. Singing. Why do we, when we get together, 
Do we sing songs together? The question was, what's up with that? Why are we singing? It's kind of curious. But we, we realize that we are a singing people. When we think about how awesome God is and how wonderful redemption is and salvation, uh, what, what it does for our lives, our, our, our prose, our sentences of truth turn into poetry and into song. We have to sing together as a people. We are a singing people, even those of us that aren't great at singing. We are a singing people. That's what's up with that. And then last week, we, we asked the question, what's up with that, related to the offering part of the worship service. We talked a little bit about money. We looked at the scriptures and, and learned that God owns everything, and that, that our handling of money uh, teaches us something about who God is and who we are. God uses money and our stewardship of it to do something in us and to grow us. Some of you weren't here, and you're glad right now that you weren't here for that talk about money, uh, but I would encourage you to go listen to it. And uh, so we've asked these questions, what's up with that? Well, this week... The, the question on the table is in regards to the Lord's Supper, the communion time, the time at the end of every single service for 179 gatherings on the weekend for us as a church, we have, we have observed the Lord's Supper. Some of you have grown up into traditions where you are used to observing the Lord's Supper every week. Others of you have a background where they do it once a quarter or every once in a while or the first Sunday or whatever. But every week in our church, we, we take the Lord's Supper as a community. And you might ask, what's up with that? I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing if you think about it. I mean, here's what happens. We get to the end of the service after singing a few songs and hearing a sermon a song is played, and as individuals, or as couples, or as families, we walk up, we grab a piece of bread, we dip it into the juice, and then we eat it. I mean, think about it. It's, it's strange, isn't it? It's really curious. I mean, it's familiar to us. This, for those many of us have, who have some sort of religious or church experience in our backgrounds. But it's really, really strange. And you, and you might want to know what's up with that. Or maybe you've not asked the question, what's up with that? And even as I'm saying it, you go, you know what? What is up with that? (laughs) Well, the Lord's Supper as a part of our Christian worship gathering is so significant. Let me back up here and let's talk about the importance of eating together. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Let me ask you a question. What's your favorite place to eat? Somebody shout it out. What's your favorite place to eat? Escalantes. What was another one? Nymphas. Jimmy John's, shout out to Jeff Thigpen, <laughs> owner of Jimmy John's downtown, two locations. There you go. Um, we, we, uh, you know, food is so important. I mean, you're going to be hungry this entire talk. You are going to be so hungry. It's so important. We eat together for all kinds of reasons beyond just it provides some sustenance so we have the energy to live our daily lives, right? We, we eat together to, to celebrate. We eat together to connect with people. And we eat together at times to remember. I mean, the gathering of people for a meal is so important in every one of our lives. There's a woman who wrote a book about the importance of 
the family unit eating together during the week. This lady, Miriam Weinstein, wrote this book called How Eating Together Makes Us Smarter, Stronger, Healthier, and Happier. And she's talking specifically about families eating together, but let's think about this. She says, family supper is important because it gives children reliable access to their parents. It provides anchoring for everyone's day. It emphasizes the importance of the family non-verbally, and it reminds the child that the family is there and that she is a part of it. So she's talking here about the family meal. And one thing that she does point out is that in the last two generations, there's been a drastic change in how many families eat together. And it costs something in society. I mean, the rate of children whose grades fail and it's directly tied to a lack of gathering together, uh, specifically for the purposes of eating and that fellowship time. It's, It's interesting, all the research that's done out there. And this message is not about our families eating together, although I would strongly encourage that. We try to do that in our home. But this family is about the, this message is about the church family eating together every week because that's what we're doing at the end of the service. We're having a meal. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's a small meal, which is why most of you go from here and go somewhere else and, and, and eat more. But this meal that we have together is so important. And the very first happening of this meal was with Jesus and his closest followers on the weekend of Passover, which is a Jewish celebration, a Jewish Jewish remembrance holiday. This, This meal, the very first Lord's Supper, happened on the eve of the day when Jesus was arrested and eventually beaten and crucified. So the Lord's Supper, the very first one, when we think about taking the meal at the end of the service, we must look back and go, okay, if it was instituted by Jesus with his closest followers as a last act before he was crucified, it must be an incredibly important meal. It goes beyond just the religious exercise of like, okay, I took the Lord's Supper. There's... Several occurrences in the Bible where this Lord's Supper is talked about. It's talked about in the Gospels, and G read two uh, Gospel readings of it. But there's three phrases that stand out in each of these stories. There's three phrases that stand out that I want to talk about. First of all, whenever Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, which is basically a place where they met to have a meal which was a part of a traditional Passover celebration for the Jews. In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, if you're there, you can, you can look there quickly. And as they were eating, as a part of the meal, he took bread and after blessing it, which was traditionally done at Passover by the leader of whoever was at the dinner, and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. That's kind of a funny phrase. And we could easily read over it and just think, okay, this is his body. I mean, the bread represents his body. So what's so important about that? Well, what's clear is that him taking the bread is him communicating to them that his body will be broken for them. It's a way in which Jesus is teaching them that he's going to give himself physically for their well-being. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 where Paul is talking to the Corinthians about how to do the Lord's Supper, uh, we have these words. Jesus saying, this is my body, which is for you. Another translation says, it's broken for you. So when Jesus 
takes this bread and he breaks it as a part of this ceremony at the end of the meal, he's going to say to them, there is going to be a brokenness and that brokenness is going to be my body. Catch this. Jesus, God in the flesh. Philippians 2 tells us that the person that became a man named Jesus has always existed chose in service to humanity to become a man to be shamed for us. He was broken and beaten and bruised. Just for a moment, let me describe to you what it was like at the crucifixion so that when we hear the words, this is my body broken for you. In fact, those are the words that whoever's serving the bread as a part of our worship service say to you. They say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. When Jesus was arrested and convicted of crimes, he suffered severe physical abuse. He was flogged. He was tied to a post, leaving his back entirely exposed. The Romans, they used a whip called a flagrum, and it consisted of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands, and they beat Jesus with it. Now, oftentimes, when the person being beaten by this device, they would die from the beating. Jesus did not. During this flogging, the skin was stripped from his back, exposed this bloody mass of muscle and bone. There was extreme blood loss, weakening Jesus. Might have even been going in and out of consciousness during this. Eventually, the soldiers stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him to mock him as one who was claiming to be king of the Jews. They put a thorn crown on his head. And many believe that these thorns were one to two inches long. And as they put it on their head, they beat him, driving the thorns into his head. Severe bleeding. Anguish. Then they crucified him. The Romans perfected this punishment of crucifixion. They chose this punishment because it caused maximum pain and suffering. And it was drug out over a long period of time. When Jesus laid on the wood beam, there were nails seven inches long driven into his wrists. He suffered. So when Jesus said at that very first Lord's Supper, after taking the bread and breaking it and saying, this is my body, this is not a cursory surface kind of a statement. (laughs) This is Jesus saying, my body is going to experience anguish and pain and suffering for you. Psalm chapter 22 Many believe that this is a prophetic psalm speaking like Jesus from the place of his crucifixion. It says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I am laying in the dust of death. I wonder if anybody around that table 
when Jesus said those words about that piece of bread, took it lightly. I wonder if they were careless with their thoughts as they heard Jesus say those things. This is my body. There's another phrase that I want to point out. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So this little activity where he's taking the bread and then there's the wine and each of them are consuming a piece of bread and consuming some wine and they're doing it in remembrance of him. That passage is found in the book of Luke. Luke's account of this event at the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22, if you're there, uh, verse 19. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A very significant passage. And this idea of remembrance is so important uh, in the Bible. And when the word remembrance or something like that is used, it's used to tell people to call to memory from something that's happened in the past Uh, something significant that's happened in the past. So when they're taking the Lord's Supper, and when we are taking the Lord's Supper, we're actively recalling something that's happened in the past. We're acknowledging it as a true event, so meaningful, that we gladly commemorate it each week, and we do so by taking the Lord's Supper. So when I describe to you what the crucifixion was like, the broken body and the shed blood, which also happened, we are recalling to mind that event, believing it's significant. I mean, you're used to that. I mean, to commemorate or to remember something that's important to you, uh, you would meet and share a meal, right? I mean, we do this, and this is a little bit of a a sad way of bringing it up, but after somebody that we we love dies, we typically, the closest to those that passed, get together for a meal. And what happens at that meal oftentimes? I mean, stories are shared. A life is remembered, right? That's what happens. I, I, I have officiated over and seen a, a bunch of sermons and I mean a bunch of um, funerals, which this sermon may feel like a funeral to you, but anyway, um, a bunch of funerals and, uh, and every time people gather together for a meal. Why? Because we want to remember the person. And maybe even during the year when the family gathers, certainly within the first six months, a year after the person passes, and hopefully longer, as the family gathers and eats together, maybe that person who's passed, a story about them will pop up. The the occasion for a meal is an occasion for remembrance. And so Jesus says, when you get together and have this supper, I want for you to remember me. I want for you to remember my body that was broken and my blood that was shed, which also points us to all the things that Jesus did. And then he says a third phrase, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now this is so important. So when we talk about the Bible, this is a very like, um, there's more to it than what I'm about to explain, but there's the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, God related to man through the law and obedience to the law. In the new covenant, God comes to man through Jesus and the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus. So when Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, it's pointing us back to uh, this idea of sacrifice that happened as a part of the old law and the way in which man related to God in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, uh, whenever God made a promise to man, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be in trouble. You'll be cursed. 
He also gave them a list of rules. And if they obeyed these rules, they'd be counted as righteous. And then also he gave them a list of religious practices that include the slaughtering of animals and there was shed blood. And when that blood was shed uh, as a part of religious ceremony, it covered up for a time their sin. Well, in the New Testament with Jesus, when his blood is shed, it doesn't cover up sin. It erases sin. This is significant. I mean, this is really, really important. So when Jesus says this is the covenant of, this is the blood of the new covenant, he's saying that there is a new sacrifice, there is a new way. There's something new going on here. When my blood is shed, there's going to be a new way that man can relate to God. In the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed to cover, and the blood shed to cover sin. In the New Testament, I am going to be sacrificed so that sin can be erased. And this, my blood, is poured out for you. Do you get that? Many of you have experienced that. Maybe you're here today and you feel like your sin separates you from God. And I want you to know what God has done for you through the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. He has made a way for your sin, not just to be covered up, but to be erased. That's how Paul says in Romans, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see sinner, he sees saint. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Now, I know how this goes. Some of you have at some point in your life said yes to God. You've recognized that your sin separates you from God. You've asked God to forgive you of your sin. You believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sin. And by placing your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a child of God. But even after that, what happens sometimes when we mess up, we feel like our sin separates us from God. But I want you to know there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is a gospel-centered, a good news-centered message. Can you believe it? So when we talk about what happened at the cross with a broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, what we're saying is something happened for us that we could not do on our own. And that happened through the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Can I get an amen up in this place? I know it's hot. This is why we gather This is why we have hope. And I don't know about you, but we live in a day where it doesn't take long to see hopelessness around us. There is pain and brokenness and rioting and injustice, poverty all around us. And especially in this city, you know what? I feel like as the closer you get to the center of the city, the more intense and pressurized it is. And the more common it is for us to not see it so in the midst of all of this where is a moment during the week where we can say there is hope there is an occasion to celebrate there is an occasion to connect there is an occasion to remember let me tell you where it is if there's nowhere else it's at the lord's supper it's at this place at this table when we come together and we say you know what I need God in my life. I need the power of the crucifixion and the hope of the resurrection in my life. So this supper 
is a way every single week that we renew or reaffirm our commitment to Christ and we acknowledge what God has done for us through Christ. I don't always feel like doing it, do you? Absolutely not. But we do it. Even sometimes when we don't feel like doing it because we believe that the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves and that is reconcile us to a holy, perfect, awesome God. Let me tell you something. No matter what you did in the last seven days, last six days since we met last, some of you, or no matter what you've done in the last six years or 60 years, all of that, that's an offense against God, was paid for by Jesus on the cross. All of it. And this is an occasion for celebration. We take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate, we look back to the cross, and certainly we want to recognize or acknowledge before God that we have messed up, we sinned. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about examining our own hearts so that we don't eat and drink condemnation onto ourselves. But we want to be honest with God in this moment, right? We want to say before God, God, you know, I need you and I'm, you know, I messed up here and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't have to list them all out. Some of you be working all day long, you know, but just tell God, you know, God, I just, I love you. And I, you know, and, and we remember, remember the cross and, and we, it's an occasion for celebration because what we're celebrating is that my sin does to stand before me and God. How I mean, that is awesome. Oh, thank you, God. We also connect. I mean, as a church, you know, we don't just do the Lord's Supper as individuals, but we do it as a community of faith because we as a community of faith are confessing that there is hope in a very hopeless time in a hopeless world. We connect together. So when we take the bread together, although many of us do it individually, and at different moments. We're doing it as a community of faith, confessing that Jesus is Lord. This is what we do. And that, my friends, is what's up with that. Let's pray together.